right, welcome back to the podcast. Man, I don't know. I just like that music. It's got a cool vibe. Uh, I didn't write the guitar part, but the rest of it, you know, kind of came, was fun until I realized just the other night I was singing that line. I'm sure you heard it. I know you know what I'm talking about. And I realized that I probably stole that line from a Corey Henry Jacob Collier arrangement. I don't know any of you creative types out there, if you've ever written something musically or literature or whatever, only to realize later, you probably, you know, your subconscious probably snagged it from something else. But um, just YouTube, Corey Henry and Purple Rain, he does this arrangement. I don't know, it's like with the BBC Orchestra, whole freaking huge stage full of singers and musicians and towards the end of the song they're just flat out going crazy and the bgvs are doing that line and it's so cool if it's not the coolest thing you've ever youtubed call me up and i will um i don't know i'll punch myself in the face (laughs) how's that for being extreme i don't know if you know who Corey henry is but the dude is phenomenal he is my very favorite pianist, keyboardist, organist, and uh, anyhow, you can watch his other stuff while you're there, but I think I might have snagged it from that. I'm not really sure, but if I did, I guess I'm giving them credit like it's really going to matter anyhow, but uh, all that to say, I like the song. Um, I do like our interview today, our conversation with my new friend, Linda K. Klein. If you're not familiar with Linda, you're going to like this. She's written a book called Pure with the subtitle, now catch this, because you know I like long titles, and this one gets at the heart of the book really well. Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Just whatever you're doing, just carve out an hour of your day to set some stuff aside so that you can listen to some of the wisdom that Linda drops here. I'll catch you at the end. All right, peace. say how good your writing is Mm, thank you and I I tend to think you know I I attempt to write myself and I tend to think that good writing takes a lot of courage and under any circumstance and I was thinking about yours uh, your book this morning um, and how even how much more courage it even took to write like that Mm. The, the way you Pull your own stories together, and then not only anecdotal observations, but then uh, the research that you've done. Uh, mm. It is—it's really good. So, oh gosh, that means a lot to me. I, I really appreciate that. You know, I will say I appreciate the writing conversations, which are few and far between, because you know, usually I talk so much about the book content, which is important you know? Um, but you know, I do identify as a storyteller and within that as a writer and, and, um, and so I love the writing conversations. Right. Um, so one of the things that I'll just say in regard to that kind of telling the full story, uh, one of the things that I talked to writers about is, 
you know, I feel like it's really, really important. And a lot of writers feel this way. Um, this first part of what I'm going to say, it's really important not to have any secrets from yourself on the page, right? You have to be able to say it all, right? You have to be able to tell the full truth. Um, and that's so much of what makes good writing. Like if it terrifies me when I'm writing it, and if it makes me cry when I'm writing it, you know, because of my own processing, people actually really can feel that. I, I find that it somehow it translates, even if, even if the words aren't you know, the most lyrical words, like there's something about me telling my truth that people can feel that I'm telling my truth, you know, um, and feel that I'm scaring myself. And, and then the second part of that, that I'll say, which I don't hear very many writers say, though, um, I think certainly many writers, um, adhere to this is that you don't have to publish everything though. Right. And, and that's something that I think is really important for those of us who grew up in evangelical or other, um, you know, cultures of confession <laughs> and cultures of accountability um, that can lead to a kind of toxic vulnerability. You know, there are things that I wrote that then in the editing process, I decided not to share, right? So it's sort of this balance between what are the parts of myself that I'm willing to expose um, because I think that it's beautiful and important for my own healing and because I think it'll, you know, be helpful for others, you know? And, and what are the parts that, you know, are maybe not part of this story, right? Or are not necessary for this story. Um, that are, are gonna, I'm going to keep to myself for now, right? Um, you know, maybe in a future story, they'll be out there, you know, for a future purpose, but, but I don't have to share everything, right? So, so, so much of, of the work I feel like of writing in regards to personal story, you know, feels very related to the work of story sharing in general, that I think is such a huge part of the healing from purity culture and the healing from other um, constricting religious beliefs or harmful religious beliefs. It's like, it's like, yes, we have to be able to talk about it, right? We absolutely have to be able to, um, uh, to have no secrets from ourselves, <laughs> you know, and to, um, and to have somebody to whom we can bring, you know, um, the hardest parts of our lives when we're ready, not necessarily immediately, right? Um, but, you know, we also have the right to our own silence and we have the right to um, be so in process with something that we know it's not time to put it out there to our spouse even or to our brother or <laughs> to our parents, right? Um, and certainly to the world. So I feel like, I feel like the writing process to, you know, the research part that you brought up is obviously a whole other conversation, but when it comes to, to self-exposure, um, that balance is, is something that I really tried to practice that I think is important for us all to practice, especially those of us who came out of a culture that said, if you don't tell everything, you're not going to have the connectivity with others that you need. If you don't tell everything, you're you know, going to be hiding something in a way that's evil or, you know, so on and so forth. I couldn't agree more. And I'm curious, how, how did you vet that process then? Was that with um, a therapist or with a friend or um, was it your own kind of internal true north kind of a thing? How did you decide 
some of those things you decided not to disclose. Yeah. Uh, which were appropriate and which weren't. Yeah, it was it was an internal true north. I mean, when I first started to write the book, I was and certainly in the early stages of writing snippets of the book, because it's something that I've been working on, of course, for uh, for 16 you know, it's been 16 years since I started that first journey, right? That first journey home where I started these formal interviews, um, you know, and, and throughout that time, it's not been exclusively interviews before I started the book. I would write little pieces and share them with people and kind of get feedback. But but when I really started to dive in to writing the book, I remember thinking, well, I need a community. And so I reached out, I found a writing group, you know, but their feedback was actually not helpful for me. And I, and my, my, um, same with my editor, like it was just like too raw to, to be bringing to anyone I realized. And so, you know, speaking of kind of looping back to the theme of isolation, you know, for me, the writing process, um, until I finished the first complete draft, which certainly did go through revisions, but the revisions were relatively small once I actually finished a completed draft. Um, I really did that you know, in isolation. Um, I remember when I would come out <laughs> in, you know, in those days and those months and I would meet somebody, you know, in the evening or something like that. I remember they would be talking about their lives and they would have this like external energy, you know, that you have when you're meeting with somebody, you're like, Hey, here's the exciting things that are happening. And then I've got this new project. I mean, I live in New York city. So like, I have a lot of people in my life like that. And, um, and I used to be able to match them. And I remember, it, I just remember feeling like I lived in another land. Like I couldn't meet them. I couldn't meet them in this world because I lived somewhere else. But I, but I found I had, I had to do that because they're just, um, there just was such a, it was such, it's such an intense process to write. It's certainly such an intense process to write um, uh, when you're holding other people's stories um, that are so heavy and when you're holding your own story that's so heavy. So I needed to tell the whole story and then I needed to go back and ask myself some, some deep questions, you know. Um, I was seeing a therapist the whole time, but, um, but, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily bringing those questions to my therapist. I was really just, you know, keeping myself steady and holding on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but then of course there was the time then when you have the full draft where you start to bring in your editor, um, you know, and so on and so forth. But by then I had wrestled with so much that, like I said, we made very few changes. So I started talking about courage the courage to write, it's the courage to tell your story, to stick with it um, in the face of, you know, the, the crazy stuff that you experienced. And then, like you said, holding all the stories from these other ladies um, and undoubtedly probably some men along the way, too. Certainly. Um, yeah, the whole gender spectrum, but but particularly women. Yeah. Right. Where where did you where do you think that courage comes from to actually deal with this? as opposed to just um, uh, turning away from it and rejecting it? Hmm. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, this is, um, I am answering your question, but I'm going to take a little roundabout route to get there. Um, I hear from people, one of the things that's been an incredible privilege for me has been since the book has come out, I just am constantly hearing from people. I mean, literally still daily. And, and the book came out at the end of 2018. So um, one of the messages I received recently was from a survivor of church um, 
but he, um, they didn't get specific about exactly what happened. Um, and, you know, as they were sharing their story and asking for, you know, sort of suggestions and resources, you know, they described all the different things that they had already done to seek justice, to seek change, right? And it was years and years and years of, um, you know, going down this path to try to get this work and then to work and then having themselves turned away and then going down this path to try to get this to work and having that, you know, be shut off. And it was just, you know, effort upon effort upon effort upon effort. And, you know, and, and when I wrote them back, I remember, you know, my first, my first feeling after reading their story, which I shared was, you know, you've already been through so much to, seek justice and to seek change, right? And you've been shut down and turned away so many times, silenced, you know, over and over and over again. And still you're here, right? Asking me, you know, what's the next pathway? And I said, that's how you know that you're doing your work that you're meant to do in the world. You know, that's that's what I think, that's how you know that to use the spiritual language, you know, that you're called. Right. I remember when I met with a spiritual director, maybe early in writing the book or maybe even a little before writing the book and was sharing with my spiritual director that, you know, I was so scared. I was so scared to write the book because I was just sure I was going to do something wrong. And it's such a huge, it's such a huge responsibility to write, especially to write something that people are, are really going to take seriously and read. And you want to you want to make sure you're not steering people you know, inadvertently in an unhelpful way, which certainly we've seen many, 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 many people do, um, leading to the kind of recovery that the book details, right? Um, so I, I took it very seriously and I was meeting with a spiritual director and I was like, you know, what if, what if I'm not supposed to be doing this, right? Like, what if I'm, you know, going to be doing this wrong? And I, I you know, I was going through all my what ifs. And I remember her saying, I remember her saying, what if, your answer is the fact that you can't stop, <laughs> you know, like this is, this hurts, this work hurts. Right. And yet here you still are going. What if that is that can't stopness inside of you is God's voice saying, don't stop. Right. And, and maybe God isn't coming in a lightning bolt to say you are doing, you know, the, the grand work, <laughs> you know, that is that you are called toward, but instead it's this part of you that, that won't allow you to do anything else. And I feel like, I feel like one of the things that's been so amazing for me, um, you know, is that the bravery has felt that way. It has felt like I've had no choice, but to, um, you know, this, it started out with my own pain and my own recovery, but, you know, very, very quickly, it became about our pain and our recovery. As soon as I started to understand that I wasn't alone from that very first year of interviews in my hometown, um, you know, I remember feeling a sense of, a sense of responsibility that was so much bigger than myself. And, and, and to, you know, I've been talking a while, but I'll say one last thing on this. One of the things that's been really amazing to me, you know, one of the goals for the book was to encourage more people to tell their stories. And I've been really just amazed by how many people read the book um, or interact with my work in some other way and move almost <laughs> with, with lightning speed from, oh my gosh, 
this is what's wrong with me, quote unquote, right? You know, like I, I thought that I was just broken. I thought that I just would never be able to have a healthy sexual life. I thought that I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But now I realize, okay, there's a reason for this. I was raised in something. I can recover from it. And then they move from that to, I'm not the only one. I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to be part of your healing. Um, I'm going to study this at the PhD level so we can get new research on this. I'm going to, you know, figure out how I can incorporate this into my therapy pro pro um, my practice. I'm going to figure out how I can make an art piece about this so that other people can be impacted. Like people are so quickly moving from personal identification into wanting to be part of other people's healing when it comes to this subject you know, in, in much the same way that I felt, it's incredible. It's incredible to me really, you know? And, and I think that that, that is, that's where the bravery comes from. The bravery comes from not, you know, feeling like it's just you, <laughs> but from feeling like there's something bigger happening here. Right. And I'm going to be brave, you know, not just for myself, but for others. And one of the things that, um, one of the things that I, um, remember one, a friend of mine, I had this campaign for a while where people would send me postcards um, where they would share their story and I would post them on Instagram. It's still up on, on Break Free Together under Instagram, people's postcards. And at my book launch, I had people at my launch um, even fill out some postcards. Um, and I remember one person shared with me their postcard and it was uh, or they shared with me that they weren't going to write a postcard, but that what I had written at the postcard table had inspired them to, which was, um, you tell your story for yourself, you share your story for someone else. And I remember her coming up to me afterward and being like, all right, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to let you post it on Instagram, right? <laughs> because, you know, because I wouldn't have shared it, you know, for myself. It's really beautiful how the story of all that plays out in your story interacts with others. And what I heard you saying is you, you gain courage. Um, sometimes I don't know where it comes from, but you also gain it from the response you're getting from other people. And then also I love the piece about that God might be that can't stopness thing. Inside. Um, and it strikes me that I think we probably, I don't know your details, but I think we probably came out of similar kinds of churchy, evangelical, Americanized Christianity backgrounds, um, probably Protestant, which I think in my experience, the Protestants struggle with this, maybe a little bit more than Catholics, although in the end it may be irrelevant, but this idea that, you know, we can't hear, we wouldn't be able to hear uh, the voice of God inside of us because, you know, we're born broken, we're born mm marred you know we're already I mean those are the first my earliest memories uh basically of church and religion is oh my lord I'm yeah I'm full of sin and broken and of course nowhere does that manifest itself more than in sexuality um but it's really challenging I've learned uh walking with people over the years to get them to trust listening to themselves yeah um, and I suppose it makes sense because our basic theology is teaches us not to listen to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You're making me think of a couple of things. Um, one, um, you know, so much of what we've been taught is this 
you know, kind of manipulative, don't trust yourself, don't believe yourself, don't trust your feelings, certainly not if they don't agree with what we tell you you're supposed to feel. Don't trust the voice of God that you hear, particularly if it contradicts what we tell you, God says, right? As though as though certain people are able to hear God's voice and other people aren't, right? Um, you know, it, it really is a, a controlling mechanism to teach people not to trust themselves, right? To teach people to shut themselves down. Um, and, you know, the first thing I'll, I, that comes to mind is just how often that comes up. I do coaching work now with people who are recovering from purity culture. And I actually, at this point, think of the entirety of the coaching work, though certainly we delve into lots of different aspects of one's life, um, you know, including sexuality, et cetera, you know, but the kind of crux of it all is to reorient the person from, um, from a perception of themselves, of the world, of their sexuality, of their body, et cetera, that's rooted in other people's expectations, rules, perceptions, et cetera, to one that's rooted in your own feelings, your own values, your own experiences, right? Your own beliefs, you know, if you're religious or spiritual, your own understanding of, of God and of what God, you know, has for you and for the world, right? So, so this, this work is so fundamental. I actually don't think you can recover if you don't start there, Right. So one of the one of the sort of um, frames that I'll sometimes use to explain that is, you know, somebody will say, like, if we're talking about sexuality, like, I don't even know, you know, my partner says, what do you want? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? What do I want? I like I've never thought about what I want sexually. And then we start to work together and I'm like you know, do you struggle with ordering at a restaurant? <laughs> you know, like particularly if you're going to be sharing, are you like, oh, whatever you want, whatever place you want to go to, you know, for dinner tonight, you know, whatever, whatever. Right. And so often, you know, we're, it's all the same conversation. It's all a negation of self. It's all a, a silencing of self. It's all a denial of self. Um, and so we have to learn how not to deny self, how not to deny our own understanding of God, how not to deny our own bodies to ever be able to have healthy relationship with others. Um, and then the other thing that came to my mind that I wanted to write down, because I want to look at look for it. So before the book came out, you know, I, I started thinking about, um, I, I was on the subway one day and I have this like very visceral memory of being on the subway, holding the, um, the, the pole <laughs> that you hold on the subway. And all of a sudden I just felt like this kind of very clear thought, um, that was, if you really want to change how people think and feel, you know, about these things, you, you have to, you have to, you have to change the music. And I, you know, there's so much in our, church music and our worship music that, you know, is reiterates some of our worst teachings. And we have people sing them in this kind of collective meditative experience and in an evangelical church over and over and over and over the same lyrics, right? You're looping and you're looping and you're looping until you're in this sort of heady space with them where you're spinning. So the meditation is like that intense, right? Um, you know, and then you're memorizing them and you're going home and you're in the shower and you're looping and you're looping and you're, and these messages are sometimes that are looping through our heads are horrific messages. And I remember, um, you know, that it's, I used to be a singer songwriter. It's not so much a huge part of 
it's not really any part of my life right now. Um, but, you know, I, I remember being really interested in people who were changing worship music, you know, and um, a, a, a friendly um, a man I'm friendly with. Um, and I, you know, got together and, and wrote kind of just like in an afternoon. So I'm not sure how good it is. <laughs> a, um, a worship song that was around trusting yourself and hearing your own voice, right? Um, so I'm actually going to dig that back up, see if I can find it. There's a recording of it that we did, um, you know, when we were working on it. But but really just thinking about, you know, it's time to, to we have to interrogate the whole picture, you know, of um, ways in which we're reiterating these messages of, of lack of self-worth that, um, that I think are so counter- to my understanding of what God has for us. I was thinking of our own uh, journey with our own faith community over the last few years, it's gone through this massive, uh, I know deconstruction is a word that's used a lot now, but I mean, that's what's been happening and disassembling and reassembling. But one of my favorite uh, parts of the journey has been the consistent amount of times I get together with, uh, the young people who lead our, our worship and we're constantly changing words out. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's, it's just increased to the point where like, you know, some Sundays we'll get together. Um, and this just happened a couple of weeks ago, even, even as they were doing sound check, one of them was like, do we really feel comfortable with this? You know, the way that this is, and we're all like, no, actually that doesn't even, doesn't even sound right. I mean, it's not, it's not healthy. It, it's just unhealthy stuff. So I couldn't agree with you more. That's well, if I can dig up that song, I'll send it to you and you can try it out and let me know what you, what you all think. Yeah, we should, we could put it right here on the podcast, Linda. Yeah, well, <laughs> let me see if I can how, find it first. How confident do you feel about this song? I mean, not confident enough that I've shared it out previously, but you know, but I, but if I can find it, I'll share it out. Sure. Right. Good news. Yeah. Okay. I definitely wanted to invite you to speak into the lives of any women, females, girls that are listening. And probably it seems like the writing and the podcast and my church work. Yeah. Well, not probably the percentages are definitely stronger on women's side than men's side. Hmm. Uh, There's, there's more females paying attention to the changing nature of all this stuff than men. I guess that's a, that one might be a question for you too. Like, is, has that been your experience? And I wonder why, mm. what you think that might be, but, but I'm thinking in particular with respect to shame and how girls are brought up and, you know, what are, I know what your book has to say and I'm, I'm encouraging anyone and everyone I know to read it. It's called pure by the way, for those who are listening. Um, and I forget the subtitle. It's long. How, uh, it's long. I'll give you the subtitle because it sums up a lot of what the book is about, yeah. but it's um, inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free, but it's really um, how we broke free. You know, there are so many stories in it other than my own. So what do you, what, what are you feeling right now? It doesn't have to be straight from the book, but from your heart about what you would want to say to these like beautiful human beings growing up with all these emotions and feelings and thoughts that all humans have and then these sexual things and then the church could grief it just feels overwhelming sometimes mm. so 
I mean, maybe I'll, I'll go back a little bit and tell a bit more of my story um, because I think it can offer people a little bit of a sense of, of what I saw in so many people's lives and experienced in my own. Um, so I was raised evangelical in the Midwest and uh, I joined my youth group in the early 1990s, which was unbeknownst to me, the beginning of the purity movement. We already had an established purity culture, right? A culture that taught uh, people in general and women and girls in particular, that they would either be pure or impure, right? And if you were to think of those words, pure or impure as kind of headlines, underneath those, you could put all kinds of other words like worthy or unworthy, lovable or unlovable, clean or dirty, um, you know, uh, whole <laughs> or incomplete, um, going to have a happy marriage or will never meet somebody who will ever accept you, you know, and if you do, you should hold on tight because the chances of them eventually leaving you and rejecting you are high because you are broken and dirty. So, um, you know, we had an established purity culture, I think, before the purity movement. But what happened at the beginning of the early 1990s is that the white American evangelical church took these concepts um, and took advantage of a moment in time. Um, you know, remember, we're sort of uh, in the later period of the AIDS epidemic, right? Um, and people are really, really scared in our culture <laughs> um, and scared specifically about young people and sex. And so these messages um, ended up becoming um, really a central part of the money that started to funnel into public schools and international aid uh, for abstinence only before marriage messaging, which pumped up the financial um, uh, sort of uh, like blew, blew out the finances that were available internally. So suddenly, not only did you see these messages getting into lots of places that went beyond evangelicalism. But in evangelicalism, you saw um, the 20% of, uh, of young people who 20, 25% of the country, if we're not just looking at, um, you know, pulling it apart by race, but if we're just looking at white evangelicals where this started in this country, you know, 20% of the country, <laughs> you know, we're saturated with these messages now. So it went from them being in the water to them being, you know, served up as the most important way to prove that you're really a Christian, right? Um, so we started to see purity rings and purity pledges and purity balls, purity curricula, purity pop music, purity, um, you know, you name it, right? You know, even, even music, right? To go back to our previous conversation, people knew, you know, if you've got people singing about these things and if you've got young people memorizing these songs, right? And seeing celebrities and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so this, you know, and then you've got I Kiss Dating Goodbye and all of the you know, courtship. And so now people are afraid to even date because it will lead to sexuality. And you've got girls and women in particular being told um, two things that makes it really distinct for girls and women. One, you know, girls and women with a greater frequency being told you will be changed if you are found to be impure. It won't be that you will have done something. It will be that you have physically, you know, been altered in your state, right? You will go from impure, from pure to impure, right? You will go from the un unchewed stick of gum to the chewed up stick of gum stuck to somebody else, the bottom of somebody's shoe, right? You will be different. 
you know, unsalvageably different, changed forever. Whereas boys were often taught, you know, you will have to be forgiven for what you did, right? It's a, it's a totally different frame. Um, the other thing that was really different about girls and women in the purity mu- movement, and which was just an intensified version of the purity culture, is, um, is that girls and women were also taught that they were not only responsible for maintaining their own personal purity via their sexual thoughts and their sexual feelings and their sexual actions, or more specifically, making sure that they don't have any of those things, um, but they're also responsible for other people's purity, particularly that of men, because if they were to inspire sexual thoughts or feelings or actions even in men, Um, And I point out actions because you can see how quickly purity culture becomes rape culture. You know, they, that the, the the sexual thoughts that others have about them also makes them impure, right? Um, So, so you've got modesty, modesty and emphasis on modesty culture and covering up and you're, you're being responsible for other people's um, uh, lives. So so those those are two ways in which it's quite different. So all of these teachings, all of this intensity, you know, when I ended up, um, you know, getting into my early adult life, uh, I, I left the church for a number of reasons. But one of them was that there was just no place for me as a person who was a woman and also, you know, had strong thoughts and strong feelings and didn't fit into the gender expectations. Um, and also was, you know, sexual, not having sex at that point, but like having, you know, sexual thoughts and sexual feelings and, you know, being, being, I think, a teenager in many ways, you know, Um, but that was just not acceptable, right? And when I left, I was like, okay, I made a choice. It was a horribly hard choice. I chose to give up so much so I could just be myself, right? So at the very least, now I get to be myself. And what I discovered at that point was that that was, couldn't be further from the truth. You know, so now I was trying to have sex with my long-term boyfriend and I was physically incapable. I was breaking down into tears. I was having, um, you know, my eczema come out and scratching myself until I bled. I just felt utterly like I would never be able to be a healthy person. I was having nightmares. I was taking pregnancy tests, though I wasn't having sex. Um, My new secular community was like, what is wrong with you, you know? And it wasn't until I started to call up my girlfriends from back in the church and to tell them what I was experiencing kind of in this, I, I don't know, this like guttural feeling that it, that it, it, it couldn't be like, I knew it was connected to what I'd been raised with in the church, you know, and I, and I felt like I couldn't be the only one who was experiencing this, but even though a big part of myself felt I must be. Um, and that was the beginning because those first early conversations those first early vulnerabilities, you know, to go back to this theme of when to be vulnerable, right? Carefully chosen vulnerabilities with people I could trust um, resulted in them telling me very, very similar stories from their own lives, though many of them were still evangelical, were married, had not had sex until marriage, et cetera, you know. Um, 
And then that became 16 years of, of interviews, you know, with people around the country and around the world who were raised with these teachings during the purity movement, which went from the early 1990s to around 2008, which is when government money started to be curbed. So we saw, um, you know, with a lack of money, <laughs> suddenly we saw a real dip in all of the products and the industry, um, though certainly purity culture is alive and well you know, to be clear, but, um, but you know, that, uh, those years of gathering people's stories, I can't even tell you just the number of people who have been touched by this. And certainly, you know, we all are touched, um, touched by it in different ways. You know, certainly survivors have a really, really particularly lonely, um, road, you know, oftentimes if they're raised in purity culture, because, because of this blaming, particularly women and girls for the thoughts and feelings and actions of others. Um, and therefore the self blame when people internalize that, you know, members of the LGBTQIA community who were, when I was growing up, you know, not even addressed, <laughs> you know, we just pretended that they didn't exist because to even use the word gay would have been to imply that, that people, that, that, that is a thing, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, and, and certainly people of color, because this is first and foremost, a white American movement steeped in colonialism, steeped in white supremacy, all these patriarchy, all of these sort of hierarchical systems, you know, have a particularly um, unique road, but there were also tons of similarities in people's stories. And the similarities really came out around a deep sense of shame. You know, the belief that I am something bad or that people will think I am something bad, a deep sense of fear, and a deep sense of anxiety. Those are the things that I felt, you know, were part of, of so many stories and that has allowed us to come together across all of these other differences and to see one another. You write in the introduction, um, I thought this was a really powerful little word picture metaphor. You said, imagine growing up in a castle and hearing fables about how dragons destroy villages and kill good people all your life. And then one day you wake up and see scales on your own arms and legs and realize, oh my God, I am a dragon. And you said, for me, it was a little like that. I was raised hearing horror stories about harlots, which is a nice Christian term for a manipulative whore who destroy good God-fearing men. And then one day my body began to change and I felt sexual stirrings within me. And I thought, oh no, is that me? Am I a manipulative whore? Yeah. Crazy. And so um, I think the thing that we all want to do a better job is to try to help, especially the younger ladies, females growing up. Um, but also, yeah, thank you for bringing up the LGBTQ, all of us, because we could get off on a whole other side tangent, but this whole idea of, uh, which has been revelatory for me over the last few years to realize that we all have parts masculinity and parts femininity and we're on, we're kind of all on this uh, sexual spectrum to some degree or another. But uh, yeah, I just find it extremely challenging and interesting and, and good work to try to make sure that these young women in particular know they're not the dragon. Yeah. And Jesus never, did Jesus ever even once act like women were the dragons? Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, and and to you know to that question that you asked about, um, you know, is it just women, right, or is it primarily women, right, and and why are women talking about it more, et cetera? Um, to kind of circle back to that for a moment, you know, the gender, first of all, gender is a huge part of purity culture. Um, you know, first of all, this idea that there is a very strict binary, you know, there is no room for a spectrum, you know, um, and that binary is so strict that it it is, you know, like a caricature, right? Like a, a woman has to be this kind of caricature of a, of a good woman, um, you know, quote unquote, pure uh, in terms of sexual thoughts and feelings and modesty, et cetera, um, but also sweet and supportive and not making waves and following the wisdom of men, you know, and um, pretty and thin and all the stuff. And, um, and men, you know, have these, this hyper sort of stereotype of being both sexually uh, irrepressible and must also be strong enough to repress it, right? So they have this kind of con contradictory expectation where they're expected to be irrepressible and expected then to, um, with the strength of a warrior, God's warrior, to suppress it nonetheless, right? Um, you know, to be strong, to be the, the spiritual leader, to be, um, you know, the leader of the house and home, to, um, you know, uh, be the hero, right? And, um, and those expectations are, are a massive part of purity culture. And certainly purity culture, you know, is, um, is in many ways, you know, the dominant, their dominant culture in our country and in our world, right? So, so this idea of, so the, the reason that I'm hearing more from women and that we're hearing women talk more about this is, is manyfold. One is, to be sure, women are taught more horrific teachings. <laughs> you know, part of this teaching is a teaching of, of totalizing messaging for women and sort of a, a, a trap door for, for men, right? Um, men can masturbate and be forgiven. Women, if they masturbate, are often taught that they've ruined their chances of having a healthy sex life in their marriage. You know, um, so very, very different teachings. And so that's reality. Um, but of course, another reason is the fact that these gender expectations in society and in the church in particular, you know, tell women that they are allowed to talk about emotional things. They're allowed to be sad. You know, um, they can't be angry, <laughs> though certainly many women coming out of purity culture are angry. In fact, rage is one of the number one words that I heard from a recent survey that I put out of feelings that people are having. Um, you know, but we weren't allowed to. So one of the reasons I think we're having rage now is because it's years of anger <laughs> that, we're, that we've suppressed. But, you know, but men aren't allowed to experience sadness. They're only allowed to experience anger and, and it only has to be a righteous anger, right? A godly anger. So, so, and they're not really supposed to talk about, you know, emotional things, including struggling, you know, you know, in ways that would expose them as quote unquote weak, Right. So the truth is, you know, that 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 is also playing a significant role. I hear from a lot of men who were raised in this culture who are struggling and who are hungry 
for a book that will speak directly to their experiences, you know, though, though they often say that, that my book has been helpful for them, you know, and, and I appreciate that. And I'm glad that that's true, but you know, what's read, that? they haven't read every man's battle yet. <laughs> right. Yes. Wouldn't that fix everything? <laughs> so, so anyway, so, so that, so that's a big part of it. Like I remember one time I, I was doing a gathering and, um, I had two men approach me, both saying, I wish I had a, a group of men with whom to talk about this, you know, and one of the things I do through my nonprofit is uh, train people to host story exchanges. And so they were like, I wish I could be part of a story exchange with a group of men, um, which we have hosted um, story exchanges with groups of men, which are very powerful. And, um, and I remember saying, well, okay, so two people at the same event in the same town both approached me about that. Like, you know, and I said to both of them, I could introduce you to someone else, you know, who is interested in that and you all could start something. And both of them were like, no, 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 no. Right. There's like a deep hunger, but also like, I'm not really going to sit in front of somebody and talk about how hard this is, particularly, you know, another man. So that those gender, those gender teachings um, you know, really, I think, make it very, very difficult to, um, to, to reveal um, the depth of the pain that, that, that many, many others are experiencing as well. Yeah, I agree. There's something about that. Um, well, I heard you say two things. Number one, I heard you say, women are talking about it more, which makes sense, because they're the ones who've been on the receiving end of such are absurd, egregious teaching, and that's that, that makes sense. And then, secondly, you, you're tapping into this whole idea that for men to get into it means they have to delve into maybe their emotions, or they have to think through things, which men are absolutely capable of thinking through things. The problem is, I think you were getting at is when you think, like for me to learn new stuff, the hardest part about learning is unlearning. Hmm. And when I unlearn, I feel like I'm not in a strong position. Ah. It feels unstable. And Interesting. So yeah. When we started saying weakness, weakness piece. I'm like, oh yeah, light, lights are going, lights, something, something was going off inside of me. Like, yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, and, and of course the church, look, I, I rip on the church a lot, but I mean, it's my, it's my people. So I, I kind of have a little bit of a right to, but the, the church has done a horrible job of that with men. You know, mm. there's no, we do not esteem vulnerability. We do not esteem the instability that one has to go through in order to reassemble a healthier life. So mm. yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Well, cause you always have to have the answers. You have to be the hero. Yeah. You know, that what, what I often think about something, Brene Brown, um, uh, has a audio recording called something like men and women and worthiness. Um, that's probably worth taking a listen to. Um, and she tells a story about how she once had a group, uh, a family at the book signing come up and it was a bunch of women, um, you know, a, a mother, her daughters, and then there was, a, the father was there as well. And the females talked about how meaningful her work has been on, on shame for them. And then, you know, they, 
they sort of went off and did their other thing. And the, the father was still lingering. And he said, you know, do you have anything on men? And, and Brene said, well, you know, I really focus on women. And he said, well, isn't that convenient? (laughs) And she was like, what do you mean? And he said, those women who just talk to you about how important your work is on shame and vulnerability, they would rather me die than fall off my white horse. Mm -hmm. And, and Brene was like, oh, I clearly need to do some work on men. Like it just really hit her. But, you know, I mean, and, and I do think that to a certain extent, we've all kind of bought into this idea that, 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 you know, women, you know, included, but certainly it's been internalized, you know, by many men that, um, that, that they have to have the answers. They have to be on the white horse. Yeah. And so how do you change? How do you grow? How do you become better? Yeah. And we need to esteem spiritual leaders, men and women who are intentionally have decided they've not signed up to be pastors uh, or church leaders in order to defend the faith, but to actually help people stretch and grow. That's right. So that's right. Yeah. When I talked about anger and righteous anger, that's the particular anger. It's the anger to defend. That's what, that's what, you know, in purity culture, men are taught they're allowed to have the anger to defend what is right, Mm -hmm. which requires, which, you know, implied in that is a knowledge of what is right. Well, we've been going an hour I know you probably hear this all the time, but I think you and I could talk another couple of hours. But I- no, I agree. This has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate it a lot. Well, yeah. um, people can find you on your website, which is called? Linda K. Klein. So that's my full name. And my middle name is K-A-Y. So it's not just the letter, but it's the full spelling. At, and then dot com. Linda K. Klein. You know what I was thinking lately is when you're an author and you get to have three names, it makes you sound so much cooler. <laughs> most women are like that, like Rachel Held Evans, Taylor, Linda Klein. Well, that's my middle name, K A Y. Not not um not a um not a not a what is it word hyphenated um, last name. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll just say this briefly. I I you know I think that there's something wonderful about being able to rename yourself uh, when you're going through changes. You know, and I I really love the idea that people can externalize an internal shift. You know, um, particularly one that kind of comes into alignment with your selfhood. You know, a shift coming into alignment with selfhood. And you know, I I went by Linda Klein until I don't know when I changed it. Probably in my early twenties. It wasn't when I became a writer, but it was when I it was when I started. It was certainly this new phase of my life, right? It was certainly a new sense of who I was in the world. And um, and now I really only say Linda Klein like at the doctor when they're like, <laughs> yeah. But um, but but I but I feel very uncomfortable with it when people put it on a name tag or something like that for me because it just doesn't feel like who I am, right? Like I, like I. Anyway, so I think that's just like a, a little note. I I often think that there's something quite lovely about um, about being able to really have a new relationship with self, particularly when the self that is the old self is one that played by someone else's rules and someone else's expectations. And, and, uh, and so who's the, who's the self that is the authentic self, right? I like it. I, I was 
I was going to try to make a weak attempt at like sarcasm, like, you know, when you're a guy, because it doesn't even work with you because it's not a hyphenated name. It's your no. Name. But when you're, <laughs> when you're a guy, you don't usually get to have the opportunity to have a hyphenated name. So it's sure you do. You it, can change your name, though. Oh, I guess I, I guess I could. There are no rules, are there? No. I, I, I could change it at age 53. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, I was going to make the joke that then it's obviously easier for women to sell books because <laughs> than, than me as a white male heterosexual. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. Life's hard for you. Hard. No. <laughs> oh, well. Hey, um, I had a bunch of quotes I was going to read from your book and all that, but I think I'll just encourage people to go read it for themselves. And thank you very much. And I want to close by... Um, saying something like, like this season of my, of the podcast, I'm talking a lot about story and how it struck me a while back that, you know, to write a good story, you have to have, you know, in, in literature, it's called inciting incidents where, you know, the protagonist has this problem. And because no one wants to read a story where the protagonist doesn't have any problems, you know, <laughs> wants to listen to music where there's no tension and it's just straight up resolution the whole time. Um, so um, you, your, your life is an example, uh, honestly, of a really uh, beautiful story. Thank you. I've just, I've had some close people respond very positively to this whole subject matter. They, I'm not sure they've read you specifically, um, but um but it's congruent with all the other stuff that they're reading. And I think I'm overly emotional because of that, because the reality of the work that you're doing um, and that I hope to be doing at some level, you know, is really important. So uh, whatever you're going through right now, undoubtedly you are going through stuff. You know, it's just indicative that um, you continue to be in, a, in the middle of a good story. Hmm. So keep it up. Don't give up. That's a beautiful close. Thank you. I feel sent off with a with a blessing. That's right. That's the goal. Yeah. All right, Linda. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Uh, we'll take care. All right. A little emotional there at the end. I thought about cutting that part out, but how lame would that be, given that we were talking earlier about men and vulnerability, so whatever. It is what it is. Hey, if you haven't had a chance to get to the Patreon page, check it out, patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster. I hope you have a great week. I hope you remember you're in the middle of a really good story. Probably don't have it all figured out yet, but it's going to work out. Take care. Take care.